You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The story I'm about to tell you could be judged preposterous. Fine. Judge how you must. Protect yourself by scare-quoting me as the so-called psychic, the so-called victim of a psychic attack. Quarantine this account however you must so that you can safely hear it. What happened to me could never happen to you. Tell yourself that even though what happened to me happens to people like you all the time. In the beginning, an attack can look just like regular life. You wake to discover eyelashes on your pillow, bruises on your skin where you've never been touched. You smell a stranger on your bedsheets, and that stranger is you. As the weeks pass, you notice other humiliations— an unceasing bout of acid reflux and an irritable bowel, gums that bleed when you sip hot tea, fingernails that snap when you push your hands through the sleeves of a sweater, the ghostly withdrawal of pigmentation from your cheeks, a rash on your torso, a rash on your hands, a rash on your scalp. And so it goes, your bodies hurtle along a failure trajectory that no doctor can explain. There is only the numb leg, the searing esophagus, the face, its frostbit complexion, its vinegar stare, you no longer recognize as your own. Heidi Julevitz is the author of The Effect of Living Backwards, The Mineral Palace, The Uses of Enchantment, and a collaboration with photographer Jenny Gage, Hotel Andromeda. She's the founding editor of The Believer, a magazine published by McSweeney's Press. Her new book is The Vanishers. Thank you for joining me, Heidi. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here again. Heidi, this is such a superb and entertaining and engaging novel that has at its heart a paradox within a paradox in that our culture views grief as a celebration of the presence of absence. Yeah, it's crazy, right? When you phrase it that way, even I get confused about the book I wrote. I'm really interested in, well, I mean, grief. If you're grieving someone, you're grieving someone who's missing. And and I got interested in the idea of grieving a person that you'd never met. So, The main character in my novel is named Julia Severn, and her mother committed suicide when she was a few weeks or a month old. So she never met this mother. She never knew this mother, but she doesn't have a mother. So she is um, handicapped in that way, or at least she's saddled by this absence her entire life. But she doesn't really miss this person since she never met her, and she never really meant anything to her, save as this mythical figure. Um, And to me, in a way, this literal scenario kind of mimics how we, I'm air quoting here, heal, how grief is something that we look to heal ourselves of. And that 
we always, in a strange way, are missing a missing. There's a paradoxical element when you supposedly heal from losing somebody or overcome your grief. The example that I use or, or that made me think of this, in fact, um, I lived in New York when the Trade Towers fell, and I didn't know anyone in the Trade Towers. Um, you know, I had a brother who was missing for a while who worked next to them. But other than that, unlike many people, I didn't suffer an actual human loss. However, we all lost those buildings, and we all really, we grieved them after they were gone. And for so many months, even into years, I would look into the skyline and I would feel very viscerally what it was like to miss them. But it's been 11 years now, right? And uh, has it been 11 years? It's, it's yeah, 11 years. It's been a long time. Yeah. And now I look into the sky and intellectually I miss them, but I can't recapture the feeling of missing them when I really miss them. And and that in itself feels, yeah, like I'm missing a missing. This novel has as its main character Julia Severn, who's enrolled in a sort of academy for psychics. And one of the things that I so much love about this novel is that the way you use the elements of the fantastic to externalize all these different conflicts within us and make it possible to talk about things that aren't really there so we can't talk about them and not only talk you can we talk about them in your book you turn them into exciting plot points yeah they're plot points and they're material things when i first uh stumbled upon the idea of psychic attack which is what the book initially begins with the the central drama at the institute where julia severn is a graduate student is between Julia and her mentor. And her mentor is this very famous uh, occult academic psychic uh, woman who has won the occult equivalent of the MacArthur, for example, just to give you a sense of how accomplished she is. And when she was only 28, she won this. But she, um, she, Madam Ackerman is her name, becomes jealous of Julia's talents that it soon becomes clear, far exceed her own. And so in retaliation, she launches a psychic attack against Julia, which is essentially she's making her sick with her mind. She's telepathically communicating a disease to her. Of course, Julia doesn't realize this for a while, so she is mysteriously ill for a year. And I loved the idea of this literalization of something we talk about metaphorically all the time without thinking what we're actually saying. So we say, oh, that person's toxic, or I can't be around that person. He makes me sick. Um, and and this is the sort of common phrasing, I guess, of what it's like to be in the vicinity of another person and the ways that other people can really affect you and sometimes not positively, that their energy really is something that your body can respond to physically. Now, this book is steeped in all sorts of great psychic pseudoscience, I think. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that you do so well is to 
put this together in a logical fashion and tell us about all these different things to make them seem really real. And what's interesting is that while all this science seems real, we immediately begin to question the narrator who is tell us, telling us these things. Yeah. You know, I did a fair bit of research about this Um but there are, I mean, for example, I'm actually going to have to look in my own book to remember what the name of this place is. This this institute, which is called the Institute of Integrated Parapsychology, is, yes, of course, it's a total fabrication. But I spend a lot of time online, of course, doing very productive things, not just shopping for shoes. And I came across a, a number of institutes that are not dissimilar from this. There was an institute that doesn't exist anymore called the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Laboratory. And these are, um, yeah, they're institutes that are taking somewhat seriously the notion that people communicate in um, almost with electromagnetic uh, emissions, right? That there are other manners or other unseen ways that we can affect each other, that we can talk to each other. Um, one of the things I enjoyed most playing around with uh, was something called a Faraday cage, which was in fact invented in the late 1800s by a guy whose last name was Faraday. And this was originally invented. It's it's made of copper and a whole bunch of metal, right? And then I think it was originally invented to um, prevent lightning strikes from harming certain machines. Um, so you'd put these machines inside and lightning couldn't get in. It blocks all electric activity and electromagnetic waves. But then this was used later to test psychics, to find out if they could still receive signals when they were trapped inside of this cage or um, cut off, supposedly, from these waves that they were receiving inside of these cages to try to establish how they know what they know. Is there some sort of scientific basis for this? Is it electrons? Or is it just voices from the beyond, hocus-pocus nonsense? One of the things I think that um, makes this book so entertaining is your sense of story because you put us right in the middle of things. And then as the as the novel unfolds, we get to learn some of these backstories. And I'd like you to just talk about creating this because it's such a it, as we read it, it reads simply. It's a, it's a quick read. It's mm -hmm. really involving an intense kind of page turner. In that so sense, so happy to hear that. I wanted to write a page turner. <laughs> I studied page turners actually. <laughs> I did. I did you a did? very intense spreadsheet about page turners. Who, who did no. you study? Well, you know, I I went on a little bit of a of a. I tried to relocate in my bookshelf all of the books that I remember kept me up all night reading them. Um, and I wanted to try to figure out why that was. And unfortunately, in some case, I think, in some cases, what prompted you to stay up all night reading a book was very specific to that time and place and who you were when you read that book. One of the books that I recall just staying up all night and reading um, was The Beach by Alex Garland. Mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. I yeah. just stayed up all night and read it. And I, I picked it up and tried to figure out what it was about it that made me stay up and read it. And and strangely, there are some similarities in terms of it's this, you know, unusual community. It's run by this domineering and at times very scary 
matriarchal figure. And also, I had been a backpacker in Thailand during the years that this book is set. And um, I felt he did such an incredible job of not even sending up that backpacker culture, but really nailing all of the strange hierarchies that existed amongst these travelers and the one-upmanships and et cetera. And, you know, in another book that I read recently that certainly needs no more publicity and not from the likes of me is The Hunger Games. Have you read that yet? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, it's fantastic. It, really? It's, it's so well done, yeah. And talking about it from a plot perspective, I like reading books that are – you know, it, it's for a young adult audience, but it completely appeals to adults. It appealed to me. But I think especially if you are a so-called literary writer, you can read novels that are written to appeal to a slightly younger audience. And the plumbing of that novel is just so apparent to you because you're not being swept away by the language or, um, you know, there there is no... There are fewer complications, I guess I should say. It's kind of just pure storytelling joy. And because you're not being distracted by this other stuff, you really can. It's like learning a blueprint, really. And I find that to be so instructive as a writer. And when I teach, I actually tell my students, I mean, of course, read Thomas Bernhardt, of course. Um, read Woodcutters. But it's actually really useful. Don't be snobby, I guess. One of the things that... I I really loved all the the characters in this and the revelations of the characters. And you do something kind of interesting in this. I've noticed this a few times in the mm-hmm. novel where you give us a character's entire story in kind of a long paragraph. Just and it's kind of like uh, what in science fiction would be an info dump, but it's a character mm, info dump. Info dump. <laughs> I talk about info dumps all the time <laughs> in my workshops where I teach. Yeah, um, I mean. It's so tricky. I think it's so tricky, no matter what stage you are as a writer, how do you how do you do exposition? Mm-hmm. I, there are all of these technical challenges that fascinatingly still can plague you no matter how many books you've written. And especially because every book is written differently. It has different structural rules. And in one of the I mean, one of my biggest struggles with this novel, I had this kind of formal anomaly, which was there's a performance artist named Dominique Varga. I needed to get her backstory in there. And originally I had written it as an academic paper that the academic in the novel who's tracking her had written. And I moved this paper all over the place. I I put it after part one and part two. And then I put it at the very end. And then someone was like, put it at the very beginning. And then maybe the formal conceit won't seem as jarring if it's it's just there and then it's gone. And I mean, I swear, I spent maybe a year moving this thing around this novel, um, like it was a piece of furniture or something. And the feng shui wasn't quite right. And then finally, I just had to bust it up for parts. That's what I did. I busted it up for parts. And I just thought, okay, this bit of information, you need to know this at this part point, right? And then this bit of information, you don't need to know it until here. Um, so it ended up being this this interesting, uh, like I was scattering ashes, the ashes of Dominique Varga. I was scattering them all over the novel instead of, you know, keeping them in the urn. Uh, I really love this kind of creation of this historical figure. And I'm going to make a request of you now. Sure. Could you please publish that 
academic paper as you originally oh, wrote it yeah. on the internet. Oh, that's a really good idea. I'd never thought about that. Put that on the website for the novel. That's I would a really love good idea. to read that. Well, you know what it was? It was actually also having a little bit of fun with like curatorial speak, which <laughs> um, which I always find fascinating and it's very own genre. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, oh, it's right. It's totally entertaining. It's if very it's done entertaining. Right. <laughs> but it's also sort of dry, but it's also so serious. It says certain semi ridiculous things completely seriously and uh, makes such large claims. So, yeah, it was actually, in theory, the paper was published. Um, it was supposed to be an accompaniment to a show that this artist had put on. Now, I the really... art. I think it was called like notes on the or, or remarks on the artist on the exhibit of the artist in question or something something like that. Who knows? But yeah, that's a great idea. Yay! <laughs> I have something to publish on the internet. <laughs> I haven't had anything for a while. Well, that sounds like fun. Uh, I, and I love this artist that you create. Um, I, I have to ask mm-hmm. just because I'm a guy and I was brought up in yeah. the 60s and 70s. Right, right, Her right, name right. is Varga, and she does these kind of pseudo-porn shows. And, yes. And I'm wondering if this has – if the name was chosen just as a a nod to a, an old artist for Playboy named Vargas who used to do well, the Vargas yeah. Girls. What's so interesting is how many – People have come to me and asked exactly questions like that. Mm-hmm. Someone else was saying, well, Madam Ackerman, you must be thinking of Chantal Ackerman, who's a French uh, film director. I recent, Just before I came in here, I got an email from somebody. Another character in the name is, is – uh, another character in the book is named Borca Erdos. And he said, are you thinking of the famous mathematician who says that everything is connected and – right? And so I guess the prudent answer to all these questions is, yes, I was thinking of that mathematician. And, yes, I was thinking of Chantal Ackerman. And, yes, I was thinking um, of Vargas. Um, I think I probably was thinking of all of these things, but not overtly. It's so fascinating to me how names come to you. And I, I really respect the when a name just comes to you, that's the name. And I, and I don't... Um, I sometimes don't really analyze how I came by it. It just feels like this intuitive grab out of the ether, and this is the name. Um, and then afterwards, you can kind of say, oh, well, of course. I mean, in my last book, you know, I had a, a protagonist named Mary Veal, right? And so much was made of that. She was the, you know, the the, the cow that was trapped and force-fed um, food and uh, and... And yeah, I mean, I guess on some subconscious level, all of these things are informing how I choose these names. Well, then I guess I can my name. What, uh, what I was thinking, Forrest Ackerman, of course. For uh, I don't even know who Forrest Ackerman Forrey is. Forrest Ackerman. Oh, he's the uh, creator of Famous Monsters of Filmland. And oh, I, when I was a kid, I had a formative. He had a, a mansion in Hollywood Hills where he would let people come and tour it, and he just had all this uh, memorabilia from wow. all the old monster oh, movies. Oh, wow. Is and, it still there? Uh, no, it, it was sadly all this. It was a huge collection. There was a big call yeah. to try to get it right. in a museum. And mm. it Hugh never... Hefner bought the mansion and turned it into the Playboy <laughs> mansion? <laughs> I think uh, Different kinds of monsters? Hedge fund uh, <laughs> babies brought, bought it and, <laughs> and sent the whole collection every which way. Wow, wow. Um, there was something else I wanted to say about naming things. Oh, about the artist. The one, the one artist who I was thinking of when I was fashioning 
Dominique Varga is Sophie Call, who is a performance or an artist slash performance artist um, from France. She lives in France. And she is hardly as sinister or malevolent as the artist I've created. But she she does all of these. She she features herself in a lot of her work. And, you know, for example, one of the things she did was she she asked her mother to hire a detective to follow her so that her mother would come to know her better. Or she'll find a man's address book and she'll go um, and try to track him down. But less in a I want to help you out and give you your address book back way and more of a of a it's a maneuver that feels slightly stalkery and and like a borderline privacy invasion. She's a she's a sort of um, sexy trickster, I guess. Well, and this gets to a theme that is always interesting in your work, the theme of identity. Mm. And You'd think I'd know who I was by now, but I guess I still don't. <laughs> well, I hope there are, that uh, Dominique Varga is kind of what you're not in, in a sense. Not yet. <laughs> that's, that's next decade. <laughs> it's such an interesting character because it is really sinister and creepy, and you bring in a lot of uh, great kind of esoteric lore, especially, you know, the kind of... Uh, uh, urban legends of mm-hmm. snuff films and, yeah. and stuff. Talk about uh, just creating that in in a kind of. I guess you create. You did it as an academic exercise first. I did do it as an academic exercise first, and you know, like I don't want to say like most academics, like my academic in my novel. You know, I'm a I'm an artist monkey too, right? I I so wish. I mean, I, I'm perfectly thrilled that I've been able to channel my creativity into books, but, um, but yeah, you know, I, 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 I feel like I've got lots of good ideas too. I could be an artist, um, but of course I can't. I, but I have ideas, and so this was a fun way to create a character and give her the art career that I could never have. Um, but yeah, she's sinister, and she. Although I hope it comes out by the end of the novel that she has her complications too, and the things that she does as as art pieces, depending on how you look at it, they could be they could be acts of incredible selflessness. This identity switching that that she advocates, and I feel like I shouldn't say too much more than uh, than that since it is a bit of a spoiler. Um, but it could it, it's obviously incredibly invasive and exploitative at the same time. And I like that double-edged quality to a gesture that somebody makes. Is it selfless or is it selfish? And, and I think this one of the things that um, the discussion of her work that kind of infects our vision of this work is this idea of intent and execution yeah. and trying to figure out, you know, it, it's the end, what, what used to be called the intentional fallacy. Right. Whether or not can you tell why this person is wants to what effect does this artist want to have on you? No, you can't. You can't. Uh, this has come up a lot, actually, the notion of intent, especially in regard to the porn films that she makes, which, just to clarify, they they are, I mean, there's nudity and um, and strange violations going on, but really they are, I mean, with prosthetic hands, for example, prosthetic hands feature prominently, but... But really, they're more emotional violations than they are physical violations. Um, for me, the films that she makes front as these 
titillating sexual experiences, but really you come away from them feeling emotionally violated. They're more, they're more a commentary on their content than the content itself. They are, but actually some characters in the novel have a fight about that, exactly that intentional fallacy thing. I mean, if you intend it to be something, but people understand it differently, then does it really matter what you intended? Um, and this actually, it's funny, I gave a reading last night in Seattle. There's, there's a parlor game in the first section of the novel because there's a party that, it's Madame Ackerman's birthday party, and all of her occult colleagues from the Institute are there. And they play a parlor game, which is essentially the there's a thrower, and the thrower throws an image out into the crowd telepathically, and someone has to catch it. And whoever catches it, i.e. read it, right? Receive it and understand it. Whoever catches it first wins, right? Or, yeah, is the victor. And, uh, and, and there's a – you can throw a straightforward throw, like I'm throwing you um, a Barcelona chair – and it arrives as a Barcelona chair. Or you can throw something that's called a torque. So it shifts in the air midway between you and the receiver into something else. And somebody at this reading last night brought up such an interesting association between writing and and throwing telepathic images into the air in hopes that someone's going to catch them. You know, you can write a book and you're throwing your imagination out into the world, but sometimes it takes some twists that you're not anticipating. And by the time someone catches it, i.e. reads it, they might be reading it in a very different way than you originally intended it when you hurled it into the world. That's the reading experience. That's we, the reading experience. We're, we're I the find directors. that very <laughs> exciting. I find that exciting, actually, that that people read things into it that I didn't intend I'm accused of that often. Are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. As being, uh, I, I, well, that's the I problem think... with being a close reader, right? Because yeah. writers aren't close writers. <laughs> well, yes, you are. You just don't know it. I guess that's true. It's not, too it's... close. You're too close to it to know. Now, one of the, I, I have to say, I totally love that this um, character Julia mm-hmm. turns off the streetlights. Yeah, and, and that I can do that. I well, I, th- I can do that. Can you, you can? do that too? Yeah, occasionally. Yeah, I can do that. It's so it's maybe you scary. also have. I mean, I, I I don't want to say that this book is autobiographical, um, but I I I do believe in um, I do believe in electromagnetic energy. I do believe you know we're walking around and we're emitting it all the time. I personally have a pretty tough time um, getting along with. Um, mechanical devices. Uh, I, I, if I am around your computer or your microwave or basically maybe I am going to pretty soon short out this microphone and this entire radio station. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, it makes you paranoid. It, it, it's less something that I celebrate and it more makes me a little bit paranoid that I'm, that I'm emitting something ruinous into the atmosphere that I'm unintentionally destroying things. And this kind of came to a head, actually, without revealing too much about my marital life or about my husband, who likes to reveal nothing about his personal life, but too bad he shouldn't have married me. Um, He came down with a very bizarre and for a while undiagnosable condition last spring. It turned out to be a rare neurological disorder called Parsonage-Turner syndrome. Yes. Boy. Real syndrome, not making that up. 
And essentially his nerves were being – his nerves were attacking them. His own body was attacking his nerves, right? Um, so it, it was a form of autoimmune. But I really freaked out for a little bit where I thought, oh, my God, being married to me, like I've electrically – I've like – I've fried his nerves. Living with me, it comes with terrible consequences. Well, the beneficial consequences are, are novels. Now, the, this book has a lot of interesting uh, literary references, too. You spend quite more time with Sylvia Plath in this novel than uh, most writers. Than in writers. my last novel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, uh, Plath, I don't want to generalize, but, um, I mean, she interests a lot of people, right? She's mm-hmm. she's an interesting character. What interested me about her in particular for this novel is just that final suicide detail that to me is it what it's what sticks with me and and I think what sticks with a lot of people is before she killed herself she went up her children were in the house they were upstairs in their bedrooms asleep and she went upstairs and she stuffed a towel under their door so that the gas wouldn't seep beneath and um, harm them in any way and then she put out a plate of toast for them for breakfast in the morning when they woke up and she was no longer there to feed them. And I have come to understand that differently since becoming a mother myself, which is why I think it fascinates me so much. I think before um, before I had kids, my understanding of that scenario wasn't that, oh, she's a monster, right? But, but I do think that, that that factors into how that scene or that behavior is read. The notion that somebody, although she was obviously trying to take care of them in her way, you know, she killed herself right downstairs for them. And and uh, and she left her children, you know. And I would always identify with the children in that scenario, right? And now I'm a mom and now I identify with her. And I just think she obviously, you know, she felt she was toxic to herself, I think she felt herself to be a toxic presence and that she didn't feel that they would suffer by not being with her. And that it, to me, read weirdly, or this is how I've manipulated this detail for the purposes of my novel. I view it as almost an incredible sacrifice. Like she's willing to save her children from being exposed to her by killing herself. And in doing so, she's depriving herself of of them, you know. She's she's depriving herself of her own children and seeing them grow up. And um, and and when I think about that, when I think about not being able to see my own kids grow up, I I feel a different relationship to the act that she committed. Another uh, writer who informs this book, and this is somebody who I think. Uh, might, uh, as time moves on, prove to be one of the great all-time American short stories, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, The Yellow Wallpaper. Well, you know, so much of this novel, I really was drawing on my experience as a women's studies minor when I was in college. And this was from 86 to 90, which was a very particular time in um, feminist studies, which weirdly is coming back into into fashion now. Really? I, I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, for starters, uh, it was, um, I mean, it, it was 
a part of Eugenides, Jeffrey Eugenides, the marriage plot, at least in terms of that's what the characters were studying at Brown at the time. It was this sort of semiotics and a certain kind of late 80s feminism. Um, but then recently I saw that the Paris Review is publishing something. It's either by, I think it's Hélène Sixou or Luce Irigaré. Mm-hmm. Um you know, two of the two of the biggies back in the back in the day, right? In my day, at least of of uh, feminist studies, and the Yellow Wallpaper was another one of those kind of seminal texts that I read in um, in college, and I was yeah, I was interested, I think, in in looking at how what I studied all those decades ago held up today, or or. Um, or rather, I wanted to see, was it part of a progression or was it something that subsequent feminists have have just denied or disdained? There was a really interesting article in Harper's written by Susan Faludi called, I think, American Medea, and it was um, American Feminism's Ritual Matricide. And it talked about how the feminist movement in America in particular really could never get any kind of purchase or toehold or or develop any forward momentum because the movement is predicated on each new generation has to, quote unquote, kill the mother. Each new generation defines itself by rejecting what the previous generation has accomplished and believed in. And and I thought that was a really interesting relationship to explore, and especially how that mirrors the competitive um, tension between Julia, who's the new generation of psychics, and Madame Ackerman, who's the old generation of psychics, and then how that also plays out in mother-daughter relationships. Which feature largely in this novel. Which feature largely. I mean, this is another remnant a really persistent remnant of my college studies. Um, I think the first women's studies class I took was called Mothers and Daughters. Yes, it was. <laughs> and uh, Are you I, still writing that term paper? I'm still writing that term. I've written it like four. I've written four novel-length term papers. And, uh, well, yeah. they're a rockin' deal. This I, is it's totally guess, exciting. I guess so. You know, it's what's so ironic is that I don't have one of these mothers. Uh, I don't have a mother with whom I have to struggle to um, to erect identity boundaries. Um, our relationship is not um, threateningly porous in any way. Uh, I, I We just don't have any drama. There's no psychodrama between us. And so maybe in a sense, this is me. Um, it's it's, it's uh, wish fulfillment or something in the form of fiction. I see these really tortured mother-daughter relationships, and I guess I don't understand them fully because I don't have one. And so I'm... They interest me, and and I want to explore them in a fictional context. Well, one of the ways that you explore all this is using the um, these all these elements of the fantastic to externalize this stuff. And I think that's that's one of the things I think that makes this so interesting, um, because when you do that, it gives us something we can read it forward plot momentum. It's exciting. It's interesting. It's scary. Um, talk about. Uh, but the way you you seem to have internalized the your knowledge of the psychic stuff to the degree where you can write about it um, freely. 
Yeah. I mean, I will say I did some research. Mm-hmm. I didn't do a ton of research. I I haven't I have a complicated relationship to research, I suppose, because the more you know, then the more beholden to some pre-established truth you are. And then I start to feel like I'm writing journalism. Mm. And if I know just the basics, then it allows me to feel more creatively liberated. And interestingly enough, I did not, I've never, I had never been to a psychic until about six weeks ago which was obviously right before this book came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and in part, I hadn't wanted to go for for those very reasons. I didn't want to be so familiar with how psychics worked that then I felt that my imagination was somehow um, hampered by that experience. And and I, uh, yeah, I, I found the psychic conceit, I suppose, to be a way in which I could view, to be honest, very familiar everyday problems or conflicts such as mother-daughter tensions, right? Mentor-mentee tensions. How do you deal with grief? All of these things that, for me, when I try to approach these things directly or kind of on the nose, I just feel like I don't have as much to say about it or what I have to say about it doesn't feel as interesting to me. And if I just put a little, if I skew it a little bit, just so, you know, everything in this book is fairly normal. I mean, I kind of think of it as a realist novel, mm-hmm. sort of, right? Yeah, no, except it feels there, that way. Except there are psychics. Right. And the psychics are treated as just part of this world. They're not They're not an anomaly. Um, but by putting that... Um, that twist in that allows me that just allows me to to see this world differently and to see it in a way that I find is uh, it allows me to be more insightful it feels like the expression of the emotions is more authentic because you as you say you have some ground understanding but as you creatively write about this and reinvent it yourself, it gives it that kind of real feel that there's you and there's this realist thing there. And the psychic stuff seems very realistic. I'm glad to hear that. Um, I mean, you know, I guess when I, whenever I try to write kind of on the nose uh, realist or traditional fiction, I feel as though I'm channeling Jack Handy, who's that, who's that, um, comic writer who used to do that thing called Deep Thoughts on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> so, um, and all due respect to Jack Handy, but um, but I, I uh, you know, those are meant to be funny. And, and um, yeah, so somehow weirdly putting a psychic conceit over this novel made it less ludicrous mm-hmm. or made it allowed me to be less ludicrous. Now, uh, one of the things I like, and this is something that you do that's pretty interesting, is that uh, your um, Madam Ackerman has written a, a book called "Email from mm. the Dead," and we have you talk about you know the vulnerabilities of people to uh, psychic attack through social networks and uh, book groups. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I think that's a great, great idea, and it's scary, and it seems like that seems it very realistic. It seem very real. Yeah. Well, all right. So assuming that uh, people, or you know, that a psychic can, you know, do a quick Google search, and you'll quickly stumble upon a lot of sites that state um, 
that uh, psychics are essentially people who can either harness or conduct the electromagnetic energy that's out there, um, that we all leave an energy imprint in the universe. Just because we're dead doesn't mean that we are not still out there capable of communicating to somebody who can, as I said, like harness this energy. And I just started to think, well, all right, we're, we're surrounded by bandwidth. We're surrounded by wireless signals. Um, wouldn't it be just way easier to be a dead person these days if you wanted to communicate with the living? I mean, it's got to be a lot harder to go and manually manipulate a Ouija board, right, than it is to just, you know, infiltrate an email account. Just hop on hop on that bandwidth, hop on that wave and ride it to someone's inbox. Um, but then, of course, with the social networking thing, you know, I'm kind of playing on the idea of computer viruses, right? We do conduct sicknesses via like computer to computer and um and so if you're participating in a social network um your whole life is available to somebody you are you're much more vulnerable it would seem to me if somebody were looking to malevolently infiltrate your life and you can do it via bandwidth right Sure, it's already. And I, I love, too, that you get in uh, the famous uh, Einstein quote, spooky action at yes, a distance. Yes, that's, yes, That's becoming uh, more and more relevant all the time. Um, one of the things that this book turns on and that you use as a plot driver is ambiguity. And <laughs> I love that you – the idea of disambiguation and reambiguation. Right, right. <laughs> This is, in fact, a little bit of a nod to my former, sadly, co-editor at The Believer, Ed Park, who had a whole disambiguation blog for a while, which I now think has been renamed The Dizzies. But, yeah, the idea behind that was this This taps into the vanishing title to a certain degree. I've created a company or a service that acts as a suicide prevention service or a suicide alternative service. And what this what this service postulates is that the reason part of the reason that you may want to kill yourself is not you, but the life that you're in. And so you have to disambiguate yourself from your life, right? You have to reambiguate in another context. And and so subsequently, this, this service acts as almost a witness protection program. It, it helps you vanish from your life and from all your loved ones and from all these people who are probably inadvertently making you so sick and so unwell that you actually want to kill yourself. And Or the reverse. Or the reverse. They love you so much you want to kill yourself. Is that what you're saying? Or no, maybe you're making <laughs> them all sick. And oh, well, yeah, no doubt, right? From no you. doubt. But I also, again, like to, to play with these metaphors a little bit more, I, I, I extend that into, well, if that's, if that's the thinking about why you want to kill yourself, wherever you go, you're eventually going to become so reambiguated that in order to save yourself, you're going to have to re-disambiguate, right? And, and it, it sort of, to me, made me think of people who take m- pills or medicines for depression and how 
they work for a while and then they stop working and then you have to take a different pill and then that works for a while and it stops working and that that sort of terror of okay i have this solution but it's always temporary and i it's always going to expire or stop working at some point and i have to move on and thinking about you know what about that person who's essentially escaping themselves escaping self-harm and then they've just they've exhausted the possibilities they've lived everywhere there's nowhere else to hide as we were saying earlier, life is the disease that admits but one cure. Exactly. You can you can keep running, but that cure will catch up to you someday. I, I and I also love the the whole idea of you know Schadenfreude that that you know permeates this novel. I mean, and that's really a plot driver here too. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and of course, it it comes back to bite the main character in the behind, <laughs> right? As all Schadenfreude should, right? Yes. Having, of course, experienced it myself and then felt so guilty that I actually wanted to be punished for for feeling it. So maybe this is just me imposing my own sense of justice on something. But yeah, you know, there she's very, especially in the beginning, you know, she's been through a lot, Julia. She's sort of learned her lesson. So the book is narrated in a sense by her from a, a future point in time where she knows that the schadenfreude that she's experiencing is going to come back and bite her. Um, and so she, you get to, I think, experience the character experiencing this schadenfreude but it's being told by a person who already knows better. So I love that kind of double lens. I mean, what I always talk about with my students, too, when you write a novel from the first person perspective, the I perspective, if you do it in past tense, there's technically two eyes at work there, right? Mm -hmm. There's the I that is telling you the story, and then there's the I in the past that they're telling you about. And depending on how much different distance, rather, time distance you want to put into that past tense, and sometimes it's not much distance at all. Um, in the case of this novel, the distance is enough that you get to have that interesting interplay between this is being told to you by somebody who knows how her behavior is going to um affect her in the end. And also you get to experience the character in this innocent stage, unaware of how her behavior is going to affect her. You know, as I read this novel, it was just so seamless uh, a reading experience. It's completely immersive. Bang, you're in there. You're pulled through, stay up all night or two, and then finish the book. And it seems like, you know, if it must have popped out whole like God, that. No. <laughs> no. God, no. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, this book, I mean, I, I would make jokes to people as I was writing it that I was being psychically attacked by my own novel. Um, I think I, you know, it's it took, possible. <laughs> I, I think it's possible. I mean, in theory, I guess by the, this is, I haven't published a book in six years, but I really didn't start this book until three years ago. But I think in three years, I aged like 15. I'm telling you, I paid for this novel with my face. That was the cost of writing this novel. I look in the mirror and I think, I really have. I've been attacked by this book. But um, no, it was incredibly it was incredibly hard to write this book. And um, I think part of it was, you know, like all writers these days, I have like 14 moving parts to my life. Um, I am a professor. I am an editor of a magazine. I write nonfiction when I can. I am a short story writer. I'm a novelist. I have two kids, right? I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, 
I do laundry on occasion. Um, I I think for some reason, I think because between the last book and this book, I'd had another kid, and that just tipped it over the edge somehow. That was just the that was the you know the piece of gravel on the seesaw that suddenly just made it all come crashing down, and um, and so I I started this book without having really thought about it enough beforehand. So at the end of the first draft, I just had a huge mess on my hands, and I had to then do the kind of thinking that ideally you do before you start a book, except I hadn't done that yet. And so then not only did I have to do this thinking, I had to do this thinking with an extant draft, which was extremely flawed. Um, so yeah, this took a lot of work, this one. I, I, you know, good work. I, I feel I grew more writing this book than I have with any of my other books. I think also because I was really trying to push the emotional element of this book. Um, people always ask, do you read your reviews? And And I do read my reviews. And I actually find it really helpful to read reviews, I think because I'm always looking for you know, a critical outside perspective, someone to kind of give me my next goal, um, something I could do better in my next book. And I was very inspired by a review I got in the New York Review of Books for my last novel, which was sort of a roundup of everything that I'd written up to that point. And the woman was very complimentary, but she said at the end, um, I think... Julevitz has it in her to write something more emotionally resonant. And that that made sense to me. And that seemed like a very worthy goal. And And that also might be why this novel was harder for me to write, because I don't do that naturally. I think that's um, with sort of wittiness and... and um, linguistic acrobatics. I'm, I'm just quoting other people here. I don't actually think this about myself. Um, I, I try possibly to cover up the fact that doing really hard-hitting emotion is hard for me. And so this time I really thought, okay, I am going to do that thing that is hard for me. I and think, it was hard for me. <laughs> but you accomplished it. Now, I want to I want to ask one last question very quickly. I'm hoping that you're going to be using more elements of the fantastic in do your Do you? Yeah, because I think you do that really oh. really well. Well, I'm actually I am I am taking um I'm taking recommendations right now. So, whatever uh, someone told me or someone someone based on some um conversation we had, I, I sort of ended up thinking, okay, my next novel is going to be an all-male um, semi-erotic sports novel. So that was one, um, that was one idea uh, for what to do next. Maybe if I, it was an all-male paranormal erotic sports novel, would that, <laughs> would that make you happy? Well, as long as you write it, I'm sure I'll enjoy it. Okay, thank you. I've been speaking with Heidi Julevitz. Her new book is The Vanishers. Thank you for joining me, Heidi. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.